And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Hi, Gary. To the gentle sounds of... I ridicule. Don't know, Rick Bradbury and his orchestra. <laughs> it should be the gentle sounds of ridicule. <laughs> and how are you? I'm doing well. I'm having an interesting week. I'm getting prepared to go to the Locust Awards, um, yep. which are this coming weekend. Um, by the time some of our people will have downloaded and listened and listen to this, I might be there. Um, and I'll admit, I'm I'm nominated, so I'm so I'm going. <laughs> Excellent. I have an advantage over you, Gary. See, this, this is really oh. mean. I'm going to be mean, 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 mean. It's all about in, in, in insider knowledge, isn't it? Certainly is. I can. Uh oh. What are you going to say? <laughs> well, you know, of course, that I mean, our our late friend Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, like nothing more than a little bit of insider knowledge. So, of course, it's possible I might know the results of the Locust Awards already. <laughs> Charles always liked you best. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, it's true. <laughs> no, seriously. Now, you've been nominated for awards. You've seen yourself on ballots repeatedly. Yeah. It's really better to know in advance whether you're going to win or lose. Not only is it not better, it's much worse. I would imagine. I mean, I've, I've okay. Here's the thing. I've been up for. I was up for a Hugo for for, and I knew I had no chance. I was up against Kate Wilhelm. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's like okay, you know, vote vote for me or vote for God. So I so I had no delusion. But even with that, even with you know a major historic iconic figure in the field who you know is going to win the award and deserves the award you, you're thinking at the last moment well maybe something went wrong with the counting mechanism <laughs> no no you're right I, mean, I remember quite clearly the first time i was nominated for the hugo in 2008 in denver and i i was stunned and delighted to be nominated mm-hmm. and i thought i had no choice at all uh, no chance at all of winning and I, I mean i and i really did have no chance at all of winning and I was just so delighted to be nominated that I didn't mind. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. Sitting in the audience at the moment when they read out the list of nominees, even though you're sure, there's just that little flicker where you go, you're right. It could have happened. Everybody could have had a, a simultaneous embolism and ticked the wrong box by mistake. There could have been a mammoth misaccounting you know, problem. And suddenly I could have, you know, like, you know, like that guy, the Australian guy. I don't even remember. Uh, uh, some years ago at the winter olympics he was in the in the um skating some mm-hmm. skating racing skating event right and what happens is everybody else falls down in an accident he skates past because he's coming in last he picks uh-huh. up gold medal i'm going there's that's my uh, uh, that's that would be my hugo story well my my my, my hugo story is very similar but it it has to do with a movie that came out in the States back in the 60s yep. by Robert Downey Sr., uh, directed by Robert Downey Sr., called Putney Swope. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Put- Putney Swope was a movie about an advertising, major advertising agency in New York, finally gets a black partner, and they're electing the new chairman of the agency. And everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to be liberal because I don't want this agency to look racist. We don't want to vote 100 percent you know, for the white guys. So everybody thinks, I'll be the only one voting for the black guy. And they all vote for him, and he becomes chairman of the agency. And then he revolutionizes American advertising in a movie that seemed very funny in the 60s, and I don't know if it holds up or not. But I was thinking, there's always that possibility that everybody will, by mistake, vote for me because they think, oh, nobody else is going to vote for this poor schlub. 
And the thing is, you see, I mean, you ask me, is it better to know or not to know? First of all, that little bit of, you know, the sort of um, frisson of hope is, is taken away from you, or the thrill of finding out unexpectedly is taken away from you, uh, which is would, would be, I mean, in fact, that's how I felt when I won the World Fantasy Award, as you know. Um, so to have lost that would have been very yes. un unfortunate. Um, so yeah, they're really, I mean, it's, there's just no win on it. I mean, I understand the one point where people begin to think they should perhaps hint. And that's the one where you're going, well, you know, we know that so-and-so, yeah, you know, Mary Q. Smith is about to win 17 yeah. Gandalf awards all in one night, but she's decided to go to the Honduras instead and take up skiing. And maybe we could mm -hmm. persuade her just to pop by because she might find it an enjoyable experience that, that I understand. So, so well, you uh, want to do that. If, if you're running an awards ceremony in some sense, you want to try to get people there because they will enjoy it if they're there. Sure. Um, and, 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 but, but the problem is, and I've had this done to me, actually by our friend Charles, who, hmm. when I, yeah, I think I it was up for a Lotus Award, and it just drops every hint. You're really going to have a good time if you come to the awards. You should come to the awards. You're going to enjoy these awards if you come to the awards. I came in 17th or something. He was just trying to get me there so he could take me out. Oh, I know, I know, and that's that's that was very much him, you know, one, one of his yes. more charming um, kind of habits. But for the rest of us, better not to know. I mean, that said, if you're not actually nominated, okay, is there anything much more fun than having oodles of first of all insider knowledge? That's always great. I love that. Uh -huh. And the other part is to be able to play all of the handicapping games. I adore the handicapping games. In fact, sometimes not that any actually, I won't mention that award. Okay, sometimes at awards when you can sit there in the audience and you've got nothing at stake other than the enjoyment of it all and being part of it and supporting your friends, playing handicap the awards you're watching is just about as much fun as you can have at the award ceremony. Probably true. And that's, that's probably something you lose when you have some kind of insider knowledge. You do a bit. Uh, you know, I mean, if you sit there going, but you, always, you yeah. always go to awards. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, uh, I'm the, well, my inside knowledge is I'm on the jury for the Shirley Jackson awards, which is given out at ReaderCon. Yep. And, um, and in a sense, it's disappointing because, in a sense, I have friends who I want to root for and I want to be excited for them, and and I am excited for the ones who are winning. Uh, but, <laughs> well, you know, yes, th there is that sense of, of of just betting on the horses without having to be a jockey. <laughs> and there is that painful thing as well, where you, where you know you're sitting there, you can see they're excited, they're full of that flush of joy of being nominated, and you're sitting there mm. in the back in the back of your mind, you're going, "It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen." I've been through that. I've, I've definitely been through that. There's and all you can that. do is just shut up and, 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 you know, sort of not get in the way of their pleasure because there is a great joy in being a nominee. I, I, I've certainly gotten more nominations than wins in various categories, and I, I find it completely satisfying. It's yeah. not as satisfying, but it's better than not being nominated at all. Have you ever had the experience of somebody who knows you're one of the judges of an award and when they don't get it, you suddenly get this baleful stare from across the banquet hall. Actually, I have to say, no, I haven't. I've been very fortunate with that. Only uh, happened to me once. Okay. No, don't. don't. Well, 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 we'll be off air in 53 minutes, Gary, because we're the hour-long podcast. Um, and then, you, then we can rake over those coals. Speaking of hour-long po podcast, Gary, guess what I did? I'm, you just, were I'm, I'm newly returned from Melbourne. Uh -huh. See, I'm holding my arms up up in the air like an like an idiot at the moment, like like it's some kind of victory thing. Newly returned from Melbourne, uh, where I attended Continuum 
eight, I think, I think that was the name of it, uh, which was the, the Australian National Science Fiction Convention this year. Uh, congratulations to a whole bunch of Ditmar Award winners out there. I got to see all sorts of you know, friends of ours, Jack Dan, Kelly Link, all that kind of stuff, and that was all good. And, and, and oh, and, and yes, that's mm-hmm. my train of thought for a second. There you go. And I got to go on the writer and the critic, which will come out in a couple of months. A couple of months. They have well, they're, they're a monthly year. podcast. They're, they're far smarter than, than we are. Oh, they are smarter than they're we are. They're younger, smarter, and better looking. It's terrible because, you know, they never said, well, we'll do one of these a week like some schmucks do. Uh, and they, they, we had three books to talk about. So after 20 minutes of conversation, uh, it didn't take long to get through. You know, to, to sort of, well, it wasn't hard to sort of yammer on for, for two hours about the three books we were discussing. So, yeah. What three books did you discuss? We discussed Galveston by Sean Stewart. That was my choice. Uh-huh. We, we discussed Akata Witch by Nnedi Okorafor, which was Ian's choice. And we discussed The Drowning Girl by Caitlin R. Kiernan, which was um, was um, Kirsten's uh, choice. And that's where I'm at. Three excellent, choice, three excellent choices. And, yeah. and you, of course, being, being the – are you the oldest one on this podcast? I'm the oldest one on most podcasts, Gary. Not this one. I know. Why do you think I keep but, coming back? But you chose you, – you, you're the only one that chose a novel from several years ago. Well, the they originally char- asked me if I could pick a book that I well, – well, Ian. Ian asked me if I could pick a book I really loved, right? So I thought right away, well, I've got to pick like an older book, maybe something – because they're, they're young things and I haven't read far back in the history of the field. I'm getting hit for that later. Um, uh, because they're young things and haven't read far back, I thought I'd pick something really you know, old was my first thought. Mm. Uh, and I started going back, and I very nearly had them read Double Star by Robert Heinlein, right? Wow. But then I thought Kirsten would probably kill me if I did that. And then for some reason, I was uh, uh, Sean Stewart's name popped up, and I thought, well, I could do we could do Mockingbird, which is a great book. I love that. Love that too. Uh, his best or his second best book, I'm not sure which. And, and then I thought, well, Galveston. I mean, Sean, Sean is a writer who hasn't written uh, a new novel in quite some time and tends to drift out of our conversation but for that reason. And I thought it would be nice just to sort of put the focus back on it and also uh, to sort of close a little loop for myself because I was on the jury that gave that book the Royal Fantasy Award. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't read the book in 10 years, and I thought it'd be interesting to reread because I do that very seldomly. So it was interesting, and it was a good thing to do. And I think you know, the book stood up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I probably adored it marginally less than I did at the time, but only marginally less. Um, and it's interesting looking back because, of course, the, you know, the other book that won because it, it tied was with uh, Tim Powers' Declare. Uh-huh. And in fact, not only that, but I think the other book on the ballot, which is probably more famous, was uh, Perdido Street Station, which also is in, oh, really? the, in the mix, yeah. Well, one of the, with Galveston, Galveston was really part of a loosely connected series that began with... Um, Mockingbird? Oh, what was the title of that now? Wasn't it Mockingbird that, that, that uh, started that? Was it Mockingbird was the first... Yeah, Mockingbird was the first one in that series. And then he did another the, one, too. He did... Was it uh, Perfect Circle? Was that the other yes. one? Yes. Well, per- no, there was a third one. Perfect Perfect Circle, I think, was the last thing he did. No, no, no. If only it was. No, the last thing he did was his Yoda novel, Gary. Oh? <laughs> you didn't know Sean Stewart wrote a, a Yoda novel? 
I, I now that you mention it, I think I do know that. <laughs> um, Resurrection Man is the one I'm thinking of. Ah, yes, terrific book. Resurrection, Clouds End, and uh, no, wait a minute. I don't know. The Night Watch, and Resurrection Man, the Night Watch, and Galveston, I think, were connected. They're set in the same world, anyway. Yeah, loosely, loosely maybe. But yeah, because we actually, we actually had a heck of a ballot that year, Gary, because we had Declare Galveston, The Amber Spyglass. Uh, by wow. Philip Pullman, The Grand Ellipse by Paul Lewalski, Lord of Emperors by Guy Gabriel Kay, and Perdido Street Station by China Mievel. So it was quite the ballot. And we had a tie. You are sounding, you are sounding like somebody. I, I remember when we voted for a van vote. Um, Shut up! <laughs> well, okay, I can, I, 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 can count, I can count coup on age for most of the people we talk to. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things, I guess one of the things we do have to talk to, speaking of ages... I've been on uh, – last Friday I was on a national public radio broadcast, and tomorrow morning I'm being on a Minnesota public radio broadcast. Would that be and for I've, the same, same reason that I, I ducked uh, being on the on the Australian Broadcasting Commission's radio and TV? I'm sure it is. Because sure I ducked out, I dubbed in Garth. Oh, that's delightful. Yeah. Uh, well, he's much better at those things than I am. Well, I mean, you know, you know, when you get invited on national public radio programs, that you you, you start thinking, man, they couldn't, they, they, how many people told them no uh, before they got to me? Uh, <laughs> well, you but, know, I can tell you that somebody did uh, do that in my case. Well, in that case, I'd sort of said, no, 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 you really need to talk to talk to uh, either Garth Nix or to uh, Terry Dowling was the other one who I thought would be perfect, mm-hmm. uh, quite relevant. But that wasn't what happened. They, 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 you know, I got out of it. I should just quickly say, as, as an aside, because I feel obligated to this before we slip ahead, uh, to just finish off one comment. You know, should you find the sound of my voice irresistible, and I have to say, other than my 11-year-old daughter, I can't imagine who would, uh, you want to track, uh, follow writerandcritic.podbean.com because in a couple of months, <coughs> pardon me, in a couple of months, I will be up. Well, we should listen to it anyway. I've listened to one or two of them. And you, not you'll hear me put my foot in my, in my mouth about the Tip Tree Awards, unless I can get them to cut it out. I'm really thinking about it, Gary. Oh, what did you say about the Tip Tree Awards? I can, I'm, I'm a judge for the Tip Tree Awards. I am so down your throat right now. What, is, what did you say? Let me rephrase it judiciously, Gary. This uh-huh. is the most judicious way I could put it. Having completed reading Caitlin Kiernan's The Drowning Girl and having felt that it was quite a stunning achievement, a major novel, Yes. That I would be taken aback were it not in active consideration for the shortlist next year. That is the most circumspect way I could possibly put it. That's all. Why is that controversial? It's, it seems to me it's an obvious choice for the shortlist. Because I said it with well, more gusto. To the extent there is. I said it with more gusto. That's why. Ah, I see. I might have said something along the lines well, of, if it didn't make the final shortlist, then I don't know what the Tip Tree Award is for, and they should all pack up and go home, right? Now that, that's, see, that's going a little bit too far, probably. Well, one of the, making pronouncements halfway through the year about the novel of the year, this is one of the things that comes up again and again. Hey, hey, wait a second, I didn't say win, I just said it should be on the list. But anyway, keep well, going, yeah. that, 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 that probably is reasonable. Um, there are, you know, six months worth of... Uh, of nominees, potential nominees, mm-hmm. uh, still looked at. Of course. And is 
is it is it likely to be surpassed as a novel? I I don't think so. But then there's also the the odd rubric of the um, um, Tiptree Awards, which has to do with expanding our understanding of genre. It's not no, gender, not learned, genre. No, 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 no. Or gen- gender, not gen- genre. Gender. Did I say genre? You did say genre. Boy, was that a, that was, was a classic Freudian. We're really going to be watch, watching, watching your your Tiptree ballot now, well, Gary. Oh, we I'm all worried sorry. we're going to get the Doc Smith novels. Well, I think uh, if you're expanding our understanding of gender, you're sort of expanding our understanding of genre, I suppose. We'll let that slip. How would you classify something like that? We'll we'll let that go. But how would you classify that Caitlin Kernan novel? I mean, is it a ghost story? Is it a fantasy? Is it a horror story? Is it a mainstream novel with hallucinatory imagery in it? It's not science fiction. That's about the only thing we can probably say about it. Here's my answer. First of all, the, the, the one not I'll give you is I don't think it's a horror novel. There you go. I do not think it's a horror novel. The answer to all the others is yes. It's fantasy, it's magic realism, it's mainstream, it's a ghost story, etc., etc. What it is, I'm trying to remember how I described it. I don't want to preempt the discussion I've had elsewhere, but basically it's an immersive novel about truth and the difference between truth and honesty and about relationships and about uh how we perceive the world i guess and, and immersive i think is the key description mm-hmm. of you 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 immerse yourself in imp's view of the world and she becomes a very uh attractive character which i think she is and then you you buy the well, you know, sorry it, it, no it's immersive just just to sort of clarify critical terminology you're not using immersive in the sense that Farrah Mendelssohn does in her rhetoric of fantasy. Nobody uses that. immersive in the, t- in the terms that critics use it, Gary. No, I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm using the, the, the terms that readers use. You're sort of drawn into that world. Not to mention that the, the, novel, the only novel which seems to me to have the same kind of um, super genre affect, let's not talk about it in terms of anything else, other than this is a very convincing world and strange things happen. And the novel which I've read this year, which most resembles... Would it be uh, some kind of fairy tale by Graham Joyce, Gary? would be some kind of fairy tale by Grand Joyce. Because I've read it too. And yes, I agree with you. I agree. Both um, of them are really convincing in their characters, in their worlds, and the, mm-hmm. uh, in, in what, what Dick called the kipple of them. And, and I so can even see kinds of leaks back because we have to – there's some things we have to mention on every single podcast, Gary. Uh, one mm-hmm. is awards. Tick. We've done that. Uh, the other is, of course, Joe Walton's Among Others, and I can see a very slight similarity to that, so, or connection to it, believe it or not. For me. There is. So, so, I mean, uh, there the, you Joe go. Walton is more overtly a fantasy than either yeah, the Kiernan book. Absolutely. Either. But the thing about the Kiernan book is it's definitely about about gender. Yes, it is. Or at least it's uh, as much about gender as it's about anything else. Though there is that really, really strong, interesting bit where Imp is talking to Abilene about being transgender and she's saying how she you know, she, she, she thinks it's really courageous the whole transformation thing and Abilene I'm paraphrasing badly and misremembering how to say it but basically says no what I'm really doing is just becoming what I always was and it's not transformation at all um, yeah. and that's really powerful and, and, and beautifully handled in the book so anyway it's about it's, 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 it's in the, the space of genre it mm-hmm. is certainly well, it's a ghost story, fantasy story. Well, not really fantasy. Ghost story, mainstream, literary, something story. It's a novel, definitely. Uh, and it's 
stunningly well done. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I would stand by the heart of what I said. And, yes, it's possible another book that may come out that is better than it this year, but it'll have to be really, you know, sort of bringing its A game to have a chance to upset that book and for it not to, to be on the, on the long list, particularly since the Tiptree, and this is not disparaging the Tiptree even a little bit or anybody who's ever been involved with running it because I think it's a fine award. Um they have a long list. It's not like like one thing. Uh, it's so, a fairly long list. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, in the discussions. I, I'll find out more when I get into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not. I'm not looking for you to preempt it, anything. I'm not trying to influence. But I, 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 I would just add my caveat that I, I think that that novel and Graham Joyce's novel as well should be on other lists as well. I mean, the world well, fantasy list. Well, we did. That, that, this, this is also the conversation we had. You know, would it be on the world fantasy ballot? I said, I would be disappointed if it wasn't on the world fantasy ballot. And that I really felt that it, you know, it was likely to be there, but that I would be surprised a little to see it on the Nebula or Hugo ballots because it's much less of a neat fit within those areas. Uh huh. But you know, I could be completely wrong, and if I was wrong on that on those points, Gary, I would be delighted. We'll have to see. I mean, another novel which is um, being discussed a lot now, and you and I have discussed it before on the podcast. Clearly fits into the Hugo category and the Nebula category is Stan Rob- Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312. Which, as my friend and your friend Alex Pierce has said, is about gender. There's a lot about gender in it. It could I've be a conversations- Well, I was talking, interestingly enough, um, with Karen Joy Fowler about that novel when we got together. Where were we talking to each other? I don't even remember it, Ikva. Um, yeah. I guess it was, and 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 she said she had the same. And she's a friend of Stan's, but uh, we both had the same reaction that an, a, a novel in which you simply choose not just your gender, you choose among twelve or thirteen or fourteen different gender combinations, and mm-hmm. you change back and forth during your lifetime, and it's it's part of the background of this society. It's not foregrounded a lot. There's one little yeah, bit. Yeah. Where there's a list of all the possible genders that you can identify yourself as. Yes. Uh, far more than we thought of. And and the extent of the, the the main character in it, the heroine of the novel, has has you know has uh, sired one child and given birth to another yeah. uh, during different stages of, of or her or his life. So there's a lot of that in there, and it's not foregrounded. And I think one of the reasons that um, some of us are very impressed by it is the fact that it's not foregrounded. It's not a novel about gender choices. It's a novel in which gender choices uh, become a an important and integral part of an imagined future. That's impressive. That is very impressive. impressive. I mean, that's not the only thing Stan Stan's thought through, but but what's what's impressive about the novel is the number of things he's thought through at that level yeah. and integrated into this overall narrative. So that's getting I mean, because I've been seeing a lot of stuff about it on the web. I've been getting emails about it. Um, we've it's, it seems to be one of the big buzz novels in science fiction for the summer. Well, it is. No, I think unmiably is. Alex was also saying, and I, I can only paraphrase her here because I haven't read the book to my great shame, is that Clockwork Rocket had gender in it. Yes, it does. Clockwork Rocket is surprising. Well, I mean, most of us, I suppose, unkindly would think that it's surprising for any Greg Egan novel to have sort of deeply realized characters in them, although Terranesia certainly was all about character. But I was talking to our friend Karen Burnham, who is uh, completing a book on Greg Egan, and she pointed out to me that 
a, a large part of this novel deals with the scientific ed- education of a young woman, um, but it also gets at the problems of a woman scientist in a way that only somebody who has worked in the field, as Karen has, yeah. would, would seem to recognize. Okay. Uh, and I, I admit that I, I thought it was kind of neat that he used a female scientist as a protagonist, but I've seen a lot of aging white male writers use young female, in some cases young African-American female protagonists, for let's what we might speculate are cynical reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I don't think Egan was doing that. I think he I think he wanted to get at the issue. I'm uh, sure he did. I've never seen get him write yeah. anything that was um, remotely cynical. Right. I really don't think that he has that in him. Uh, I guess this begs the question then, since you have this um, responsibility as a judge. Uh, and I assume that involves flagging things for people to look at and everything else, mm-hmm. that not only will you be looking at and discussing and considering 2312 when the time comes, and I think we're coming up obviously on the last point in the process where it's appropriate to talk about it at all, you'll also be considering The Eternal uh, Flame, which is the sequel to Clock and mm-hmm. Rocket. Which I've not seen yet. Well, that's because it's not out, Carrie. I know it's not out, but I know people who've read it. <laughs> Have you read it? No, because I, how, how could I have read it? I didn't read Clockwork Rocket yet. I'm not going to read book oh. two when I haven't read book one. Ah, that's always a problem, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, well, I know people who do that. Okay. But anyway, I have seen way to mile off the thing. I, I, I will wish you well with your judging and will make it and then simply say that I have, you know, uh, now put my thumb as firmly on the scales as it's reasonable to do to say, I will. We will be having a conversation when your ballot comes out, Gary, and I'll be looking for some books on that list. And if some of them aren't, the, you know, sort of the Drowning Girl, we'll have to have a little chat. Oh, you have neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so wrong. We'll take nah, a look. No, but the, the thing is, one of the things when you're a judge, I don't know if you've had this sense also. When you're a judge, you get piles of books coming in. Of course you do. And and if there's a book that you've already read and on your own decided this is really good, you still feel a, an affection for that book because it's one that you sort of picked out you know, without knowing much. that you were judged. And, and that's kind of the way I feel about that. Uh, one reason I, I also feel okay about it is you've already read the book. I'm not, you know. And, and like I'm going to honestly influence what you do. Okay, you're right. No, we were going to talk about something. You'd started. You were leading up. You had a nice segue. You talked about the, the, thing the, that the radio. You are on this. You are on that. The thing that everyone is expecting us to talk about this week and which we need to talk about okay let's not what else could we talk about um no all right we'll talk about that okay you're just trying to have uh, you're you're evading the elephant in the room uh, uh well the white or the white whale in fact whatever um so i was, I was on the a, thing there I was well, the reason you okay that's the reason you ducked out on australian national radio yes. and the reason i i accepted national public radio here is because we were asked to talk about ray bradbury is it not true it is indeed true that last week at the age of 92 i believe ray bradbury did die yes and that's very and, bad well one of the things and and, and at, at this point even days later mm-hmm. uh, less than a week later uh, it seems like everybody has said everything about Bradbury. Um, I've seen I'm, more tributes than, if I'm not mistaken, more tributes than I saw for Heinlein when he died. Because they're from all over the map. They're not just from science fiction people. It, I think it would not be excessive to say that Bradbury had a broader spectrum of um, influence. Yeah, sure. Or if not direct influence, at least it was more widely read and considered as part of the mainstream of particularly American culture. Yeah. 
mainstream of American culture and the mainstream of the short story as as a form. Absolutely. Uh, apart from science fiction, I mean, uh, the, the 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 fiction that he published, interestingly enough, back in the fifties, you know, in and and Madame is Mademoiselle and Charm and the, the one story in the New Yorker, uh, you know, he was he he had abandoned science fiction by the time he'd written his first real novel, which was something wicked this way comes. But what was interesting to me about looking at all these responses is, and what was interesting to me about talking on the radio about Bradbury to a general audience. We had a call-in yeah. show, uh, and people were calling in from all over the eastern part of the country, at least, uh, with memories of mostly reading Dandelion Wine or Fahrenheit 451. And some people had memories of interesting, specific stories like Illa or there will come soft rains. Mm-hmm. And before and after the show, I was talking, uh, I was on this program with Sam Waller, who wrote a biography of Bradbury. Yes. And we were talking to each other in the way that people who know about the science fiction world talk to each other. And then we go on the radio and we're talking to a national audience in which you can't really talk that much about the influence of Lee Brackett on Bradbury because they have no idea who she is. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was the reason I was kind of looking forward to saying some things about him here is because the things I was saying about him in sort of national public forums aren't the same things you might say to other people in the science fiction field. And one of those things, for example, is uh, which occurred to me when I was thinking about his career, and I had the same emotional reaction of everybody else of just stories welling up, you know, vivid memories of stories you read when you were a kid. But when I started thinking back over what I'd read, I thought, well, okay, I was a kid who was young enough to discover Bradbury when he was not not at the beginning of his career, but certainly the first book I read was The Illustrated Man. And I became a phenomenal fan of Bradbury. And leading up until Something Wicked This Way Comes, which was his first novel written as a novel, you know, not mm-hmm. the Mark Chronicles, not Fahrenheit 451, which is really a novella. And... It's like that was the end of his career for, for me. It wasn't okay. the end of his career in terms of later stories. I read later story collections and so forth. But it was like, okay, I've done my job as a fan here. He's written this major novel. It's fine. I like it. Um, and I don't have to worry about it. And I had the same feeling when that novel came out when I was a teenager that I did when my favorite baseball team, the St. Louis Cardinals, finally, first time in my life, won a World Series. And I remember thinking then, my job as a fan is done. I don't have to look at the anymore. That, that's fascinating. It wouldn't have occurred to me because, of course, you and I have completely different um, experiences when it comes to Bradbury. Mm-hmm. I didn't read Bradbury at all other than one or two short stories in, in high school as part of my English curriculum until I was in my 30s. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I certainly came across the books, but they just never interested me much. They didn't look beguiling to me um so the one of the first things i read when i sort of sat down and went well i guess i better read ray bradbury was um something wicked this way comes the point where you're jumping off and uh and and then weirdly for some reason now that i look back the next batch of stuff i read was the trio of detective novels that he did in the late 80s Uh, yeah 20 years later something yeah yeah and only after that did I go back and read short short fiction, and uh, address the Martian Chronicles and uh, the October Country and those 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 books. And there's still lots and lots of holes in my Bradbury reading. I, I would freely confess, not proudly, but freely in the interest mm-hmm. of honesty and everything else. So yeah, so I have quite a different 
I don't think I've ever read Fahrenheit 451. I, I I don't know that uh, it's that's important to read that sort of thing. I mean, one of the things that happened to me was, I, like I say, I read Bradbury religiously. He was the only he was the first writer I ever followed, mm-hmm. and because he wrote well, because he paid attention to his style, he led me to, he led me in that direction of science fiction. He led me towards Sturgeon, mm-hmm. um, or Simak, or Chad Oliver, or people who actually wrote fairly elegant prose. And I, for, for a few years, my first few years as a reader, I had trouble dealing with Asimov because his prose was not very pretty. No, it's not. It was it was workable, but it was there was nothing attractive about it. And it took me a little bit of time to get into Heinlein and realize what Heinlein was doing was writing what we would now almost think of as hard-boiled prose. Well, that's true. I, 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 I actually would say, it's interesting you say that, because I, having come to Bradbury late, I guess you could quite quite reasonably say that I had almost completely the opposite approach and experience. Really? In that I came to it from... Asimov and Clark and Heinlein and some earlier um, young adult, more more young young adult stuff by Eleni Norris and um, uh, Andre Norton, none of whom were greatly mm. poetic writers, however efficient and effective and you know, clean lined their, their their work may have been. And I had to build up a taste, a tolerance, if you like, for um, richer, more poetic prose that that came later uh, as I was reading, and in fact I remember. Thinking, uh, encountering Tanith Lee, the silver, uh-huh. silver medal lover, lover or some such, and Tanith is actually is, is a very very skillful writer, but she tends towards a, what I think of in my mind probably inaccurately as a, a kind of clotted kind of a prose, a kind of gothic kind of feel to it at times, particularly uh-huh. when she maybe in her in her less strong work. It's when it becomes a little bit hard to get through, and I th- that that was my feeling. That was my fear about that that in, that part of the spectrum. So that I, so, so it was when I actually picked up something wicked this way comes, probably after having watched the film. Now that I think about it. Oh dear. Yep. Yeah, see what a rotten Ray Bradbury reader I am. Because um, you're going to sit there going, yeah, you really are. You're really shit. But that's okay. Um, well, that's uh, when I kind of got, got past that. Yeah. But most of the people that I, I imagine of your generation or earlier probably encountered Bradbury in the classroom because he mm. uh, turned out to be one of the most – I mean, I don't know if anybody's keeping tabs on this. Uh, he has to be one of the most anthologized yes. uh, writers in textbook anthologies, in yes. mainstream anthologies and that sort of thing. Um, but he did two anthologies uh, fairly early in his career, The Circus of Dr. Lau and other stories and uh, what was the title of the other collection – um, um, I'm blanking on it, but anyway, his, yeah. it's clear that his preferences were toward more literary fantasy stories and that sort of thing. A little, not much science fiction at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, you know, his antecedents included people like Eudora Welty and Thomas Wolfe and Sherwood Anderson and Ernest Hemingway. Um, and he, he really wanted to write like them. So one of the things I think that the field owes him to some extent is having fought a battle literally back in 1950 that some of them are still fighting today. I mean, uh, I was talking to um, somebody the other day, I can't remember who it was, about the fact that Bradbury had published one story in The New Yorker, not a science fiction or fantasy story, one of his Mexican immigrant stories called mm-hmm. I See You. In- uh, very touching story. And he published it fairly early in his career. I think it must have been in the early 1950s. And then he published his memoir in the special science fiction issue of The New Yorker that came out a week before last. Yep. And... 
And now the new, and, and then somebody told me the New Yorker was boasting through Twitter that, well, we were really proud to have published Ray Bradbury. They published one story in 70 years. <laughs> ask, him to, ask him to come in and sit in the parlor while they publish their own fiction writers and their science fiction issues. Oh, you're being bad. It's not like that. I am being bad. That's they're, very, they're, they're, shame on you. Anyway, well, okay. yeah, continue. Will, do you want to talk about the New Yorker issue on science fiction? Because uh, well, hang on. Well, let's finish up talking about Ray Bradbury first. I mean, because, we'll go talk about Ray Bradbury some more. Yeah, because, I mean, we, we can wander. I mean, uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, my, he, 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 okay, continue your point. Make your point. Okay, my point having to do with Bradbury's antecedents and his subsequent reputation mm-hmm. is that for a period of time, uh, basically in the early 1950s, basically from 1950 to 1956, Bradbury was an influential science fiction writer, an influential fantasy writer within the genre. He mm-hmm. had distinct followers. He had Richard Matheson. He had Charles Beaumont, uh, Rod Serling, certainly. Um, and after about 1960, he had a, an enormous impact on American literature and on the short story as art, but but really not much impact on science fiction as a genre or the writers who came into it after that. Other than to the extent that everybody had internalized the fact that you know good poetic prose can has a, has a place in the genre. I think that's probably true. Yeah, sure. Uh, and certainly I can think of all kinds of readers, writers who I read who I can't imagine existing without him. In fact, it's very strange that I would fall in love with James Blaylock's work without having read Bradbury first in any detail. I can find lines. I mean, it's 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 something that I think it gets in your DNA more than most writers do. I think you know, a lot of American uh, literary readers get infected with Hemingway, for example. Yeah. But I can find lines. I swear I can find lines in a Chris Barzak novel or a Rachel Swirsky story that looks look like Bradbury lines. I'm sure. I'd also say that he's actually quite different, and this might be controversial, so talk me down if I'm wrong. He's quite different from some of the other elderly writers that we've been talking about over the past year and a half, mm-hmm. in that he's basically been in decline for the last 30 years as a writer or so. I think he's essentially that. That's true. Dec- but decline's think, a bad, a bad way to put it. But he, a bad he, had, he, had, he had concluded all of his major work. He concluded all of his major work, and he didn't really retire. Now, uh, the, the other two aging, uh, really seriously uh, elderly figures, uh, monuments of the field, who are, are Jack Vance and Fred Pohl, have essentially not done a lot of writing in the last few years. I think Vance hasn't written anything in a long time. But what happened with Bradbury is he. He reworked some earlier material. A lot of this was done either at the behest or with the assistance of, uh, you know, younger scholars and fans who were going through his basement. Some some of the collections he's had in the last 15 years have been stories which were uh, unpublished or even unsubmitted uh, back when he wrote them. Yeah. And some of those probably shouldn't have been recycled. I don't think it was a good idea for him to try to revisit. Uh, the world of October Country, I mean, because one of the iconic stories for myself and a lot of other people were stories like Homecoming and Uncle Einar and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. I don't think that needed to be sort of patched into a novel the way it was at the end of his career. Um, but again, he was Ray Bradbury. And uh, oh, sure. you know, anything that could be uh, sort of recycled, retreaded, uh, reinvented uh, was going to be uh, is going to be published and published by probably William Morrow. There were some delightful bits in those late pieces. Sure. But I think you're right. I think essentially uh, after the 60s, uh, he had pretty much established the influence he was going to have. I think that's and true. I, when, I, when, I, when you see people talk about Bradbury, I mean, I've, I've heard this and I've been talking to lots of friends. I've watched all the posts. 
almost everybody is talking about pre-1960 or at the very least pre-1970 work. Sure. I mean, in fact, I think that's probably true. Because if you go up to, the, you know, the great, say, story collections, which really were his form, I mean, if anybody dominated and created a form as much as anything, surely the short story collection was Bradbury's great strength. Mm-hmm. And by the time I, si- I Sing the Body Electric comes out in the early early 70s, uh, in, in the early 70s, I guess it must have been, something like that, uh, 69, mm-hmm. there's a small handful of stuff later, but they're nowhere near the same iconic kinds of books. Um, and whilst the you know, Death is a Lonely Business and the other two books were yeah. interesting and worthwhile, they had nothing like that impact. So probably, in fact, even by about 1970, the thing you would have to say about Bradbury, though, in that string of books that starts with Dark Carnival and comes up to, well, I Sing the Body Electric, right. is that the size of the achievement is undiminished by whatever came after, irrespective of it. Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any... Because sometimes uh, that does happen. That. Sometimes later work obfuscates the the uh, earlier work and people lose sight of the the breadth and the complexity of the achievement involved. Um, I don't think he's done... I, I don't think that happened to Bradbury at all. I think... But partly because one of the things that... Um, and I don't know who put these things together. I know there are a lot of people like John Eller and so forth that were working with him. Mm. Uh, but when some of the late stories came out, like I think there's this volume, because I reviewed it for Locus called Bradbury Stories that came out almost a decade ago, a hundred stories, mm-hmm. uh, including a lot of the, the, the old classics, you know, the, uh, the and the rock cried out and the flying machine and heavy set, which is some of these yep. were great horror stories from the 40s. And you look at a book like that and, and the, even today, because I was, of course, looking through that very book today, it's a collection of a hundred short stories, which is astonishing for anybody. And you remember uh, half of them with incredibly vivid memories. Now, I don't have that good a memory for short stories. Gary, um, the, the astonishing thing isn't that the book you're talking about, Bradbury Stories, 100 of His Most Celebrated Tales, which came out in 2003. That's the book you're talking about, isn't it? Yes. Okay. The thing that's astounding about that book isn't that stories in that book remain memorable. The thing that's astounding about that book is it's, it's the second such book that he published – the first and coming out in 1980 is the stories of Ray Bradbury, all right. of which contain the more famous stories. Yes, um, the, these are these are two huge volumes that don't overlap at all, mm. um, and and yet that contain stories that you're. St- I mean, uh, when, when when you get a collection like the the the, the, uh, the reason I, the stories of Ray Bradbury, I may have reviewed that as well. Now that I think about it, but certainly Bradbury's stories. Uh, and as a reviewer, you you love getting books like this because you think, oh, I know that story, I know that story, I know that story. But with Bradbury, you don't even have to reread them, but you sort of want to because mm-hmm. you want to recreate the experience of reading them for the first time, especially if you read them as a kid. So if I if I start thinking about short stories, um, you know, some of the, uh, I mean, I suppose if I went back and looked at De Maupassant and Chekhov stories. Yeah. I'd have a similar experience, but not with most of the short story writers who have ever come out of our genre. Harlan Ellison's written 1,100 stories. He's going to kill me if he hears me say this. Um, I don't think you could find as many that you immediately remember as you do in either of these volumes of Bradbury. You can find 12 or 15 or 20 that just strike everybody as the same way, and that's another writer who's had a career in short stories. Um, that may be true. That may be true. I think that's, I think it's true of most writers. I think if you try to think Richard Matheson, who was clearly writing Bradbury-esque short stories before he decided to essentially leave the science fiction genre and move into his novels. I mean, how many 
Richard Matheson stories can you name? Um, not that Theodore many. Sturgeon? Yeah, a handful, but not that many. I mean, I've, I have the collected stories in the other room, but not not that many. Um, and I, I guess I'm also attracted to the. I mean, and this is something that Ellison and Bradbury have in common, actually, is the poetry of their titles. Yes. I mean, a story like very... "There Will Come Soft Rains" has me at, has me at the title. Oh yeah, um, there was, which is I think was it's from an Edna. No, it's from a Amy Lowell poem or an Edna St. Vincent Millay poem. Yeah. But yeah, the titles will get you the Million Year Picnic. What can that possibly mean? Mm. And the cried out. Uh, or Ellison with I have no mouth and I must scream. You can't not read a story with a title like that. Yes, yes. And uh, the the two of them could actually ab- absolutely knock you out with the, with the titles alone. And then when the story delivers on it, even if it's a horror story, it's um, and when I say a horror story, I, I sometimes don't mean a horror story. Sometimes I mean a crime story because a lot of what Bradbury was doing. Uh, throughout his career, was publishing not only in the slick magazines and the women's magazines and the literary magazines, but in you know detective magazines. Mm. Um, one of the ones that I remember from probably it must have been in the October Country, which is my favorite of his books, was called The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl, which is about a guy who commits a murder and becomes obsessed with erasing fingerprints everywhere in the house. And he gets more obsessed, like, well, maybe I touched that. And the police find him the next morning, you know, taking the wax fruit out of the bottom of the bowl and trying to wipe it clean of his fingerprints. <laughs> it's just a great little gimmick, and it's a kind of gimmick that O. Henry or, or John Collier or anybody else would have yeah. thought of. Well, so I, yeah, mm-hmm. an important science fiction writer, not after, not after the mid fifties, really. Probably not, but you know, uh, fortunately, uh, the one thing he, all, he he has going for him, apart from his. Broad, you know, the, the real broad appeal, which obviously he has, or you wouldn't hear, the you know, President Obama putting out a press release about him, is that he will never be lost. I mean, I was had a long conversation over the weekend with several people about writers who will be read in fifty or hundred years' time. Why I think J.K. Rowling or Harry Potter will be forgotten, all that sort of stuff, mm. and. Bradbury, his work is, I mean, like, his great work is already period, if you know what I mean. And there's this thing I've said before where, you know, work goes through this lifespan of being new, being old, being dated, and then being period, if it's very lucky. If it gets to be period, then it lives forever. And I think that Bradbury's work is, great work is timeless. I, I don't think it'll ever go away. I, t- I tend to agree. I agree entirely with what you're saying about uh, his, his, his place, his, his legacy, because uh, we don't need to start assessing his legacy because we've been doing it for 50 years it's true I mean, it's true the, the the as a matter of fact this month june of this year is the 50th anniversary of the publication of something wicked this way comes yes and it seems to oh. me that that's about the point at which we started assessing his place in literature his yeah. his influence his uh the number of writers and so we've had 50 years really to think about bradbury's place and we've yeah. been thinking about it and it, it's pretty well established yeah. he was one of the few writers i think who clearly knew he had entered the canon decades before he died. True. Oh, I think that's very true. I think we could also say, because it just, just occurred to me while you, you were t- talking, Gary, that you could say that the beginning of science fiction is now over. The last of the big four, Heinlein, Clark, Bradbury, and Asimov, is now dead. True. Uh, and it's now, t- you know, we're now definitely in, if not the, you know, third or fourth age of science fiction, certainly in, in, in the second age, and probably when, you know, Vance and Pohl and some of these other older writer, writers have gone, 
uh, we will be well and truly cast adrift into the future of science fiction. Uh, which, mm-hmm. in an emotional family kind of sense, that's true. Yeah. And in the sense of the fiction, it's been true for twenty or thirty oh, yeah, years yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. We still have one of the one of the people I was talking to, our friend Karen Burnham tonight, who reminded me or informed me. I didn't know this that at the San Antonio Worldcon, one of the guests of honor is going to be James Gunn. Yes. Who. Never, never achieved the worldwide stature of, 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 of the big four that you mentioned, but who also began publishing in the 40s and is, is one of the few people left from that generation who, um, who, who remembers that world. I think one of the things we're, we're doing is we're losing the memories of all these people. Well, we are. We are. And that's a sad thing, though. You know, some bits of it are getting preserved, um, and that's important and valuable. I mean, happily in this podcasting meeting, we've seen se- several instances of that. And mm-hmm. some, you know, some books. I mean, we, we had um, a f- you know, friend of this podcast, Barry Molesberg, was on a while back. And we were talking about the history of the field with him. And I see that he's got a best of coming out before the end of the year. Yes. Which is a terrific thing. I'm very, very happy to see that. So hopefully things will be you – know, us talking about it. Galactic Suburbia talking about it, writer and the critic talking about it when they do, um, mm. you know, other discussions around the field. They help keep this stuff alive and hopefully recontextualized, which also is important. I mean, now that we don't have the big four, I don't think we have a big four. Uh, we, had that, we rambled far too long about the whole idea of having a dean of science fiction, and I think basically right. agreed that we not only did we not, but we don't really need one anymore. Um and so it's, it's possibly nice to be post a big anything age where we can recognize a breadth and variety of creativity from all sorts of different people without having to dub somebody as, you know, sort of the leader of our pack. I don't think we're going to see a big four again like that. I mean, there was a, there was a point at, because all that coincided with the late 40s and the early 50s when science fiction, if it didn't quite enter the mainstream of literature, entered the mainstream of publishing. Yeah, and people could people could make money. And then you had major pub, paperback publishers like Ballantine. The other the other writer I followed assiduously when I was a kid was Arthur C. Clarke, mm-hmm. and I thought he was writing poetic prose. Um, it seemed like it at the time, but there's the ideas that finally got to me. And there's a you you can trace a Clarkian strain of science fiction probably down through Stephen Baxter to any number of uh, space opera writers that have been influenced by him, uh, including Benford. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can probably trace uh, a Heinlein tradition through, well, just about everybody. You know, everybody, uh, pretty much, yeah. But there are people who clearly you know, place themselves in that tradition, Joe Haldeman and John Scalzi. John, yeah. Uh, when you start Actually, talking about a Bradbury yeah. tradition, there's not, I don't think you can identify a specific tradition because he sort of informed everybody. I mean, in effect, what he did was, I think, conveyed the notion to hard SF writers and other SF writers that you need to be able to write decent sentences as well as have your complex idea. But it was more, more than that, because I mean, he did the whole sort of bringing Americana together with science fiction and fantasy and the idea of the future and all that kind of stuff. Well, the future as nostalgia is something that he, if he didn't quite invent, he certainly made yes. it work. He's not the only Midwestern writer of science fiction who, who approached that. Clifford Simak, you know, coming out of Minnesota, writing about small town life and guys on their front porches, you know, greeting galactic empires. Mm-hmm. Um, way station and that sort of thing. There, there was a lot of that sort of thing, but I think Bradbury had a much broader impact because because his impact was outside the field. Simak is somebody, I don't know if he's in print, somebody you don't hear about anymore. 
a little bit of Simekas in print, but not a lot. Vast swathes. For some reason, it was one of those weird posthumous things, not to sort of, well, maybe to wander a little bit and touch, and to touch on something which we may now get. Um, uh, most of his short, I think, getting his short stories into print is difficult. Uh, for whatever reason, and there wasn't a discussion of doing a collected stories, but it came to naught. Just as I think for a long time there was a discussion of doing a, a Bradbury collected stories, now there's some kind of academic um, project underway. They did one book last year, Completes. but I don't think it's a complete collected stories in the you know, in the way we would like there to be. Mm. I think that's true. But I might be wrong. And I, but but, but I'm, I'm not I'm not terribly concerned about the. The specialty or academic or collector presses that do things like, like the oh, complete no. story of Ted Sturgeon. I I am very very fond that the complete stories of Ted Sturgeon was done. I don't think that that ten or twelve or thirteen volume series is going to end. It's going to earn very many new readers for Theodore Sturgeon because no. it's just too much stuff to go no. after. You need. Oh yes. Uh, Bradbury's got the advantage of having hundreds of stories and lots of versions of them. Lots of you know. Recom recombinations of them in print in, in, in various mm -hmm. ways. I think Bradbury is probably, uh, even today and probably for the foreseeable future, the most unavoidable science fiction writer that students in elementary and high schools will ever encounter. Yeah. Which is a good thing for us. It is a very good thing for us. There you go. Is there anybody like that today? Probably not. Uh, well, I mean, okay, well, uh, not. Not Le Guin? Oh, I was, I was, it's interesting enough. I was thinking in terms of short stories. Okay. Well, even so, she's, she's not exactly a, a rough chopper when it comes to short stories, Gary. That's true. That's true. Probably Le Guin is the one who is... Um, that's, it's interesting. If we start thinking about the big four after the big four of the early she 50s... Would be on the, she would be way up the list, Gary. It would be pretty much three out of the big four, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets a bit sort of difficult to decrypt a big four now it really mm. does so there is one thing i meant to do that i should have i mean somewhere back not at the top of the podcast but about a quarter way into the podcast i touched on continuum eight which i attended yes and, there, and you and i through this podcast have regrettably managed to fetishize the awards awards we always do <sighs> and there were awards presented. It's, it's, by the way, by the way, it's, we fetishize the awards because we want them, and if people would give them to us, we would shut up. <laughs> okay. Oh, I don't even want to go. Oh, that's okay. very good. I like that. No, that's excellent. Some awards were presented, Gary. The Ditmar Awards, the Australian National Science Fiction Award, were presented. Yes. And I'm going to tell you who won. Uh, partly because at some point I wish to make a comment, and I'll, tell, I'll, I'll get to that. The best novel went to The Courier's New Bicycle by Kim Westwood, which is a terrific science fiction novel. Um, the best novella, if I recall correctly, because I'm looking at the ballot, not the list, was uh, The Past is a Bridge Left Burnt by Paul Haynes. Best short story went to The Patrician by Tansy Rayner Roberts, our friend. Hello and congratulations, Tansy. Congratulations. A bit more gusto, Gary. Um, best congratulations, Tansy. <laughs> I've, I've read Paula Haynes as well, as a matter of fact. So. Yep. Paul... Not Paula. Paul Haynes. Not Paul, Paula Haynes. Best collected work went to Paul Haynes' collection of the last days of Kale Yuga. Mm -hmm. In a closely fought tie, Kathleen Jennings fought off Kathleen Jennings to win best artwork. Mm -hmm. And actually, I have to say, I ended up buying some of her original artwork at the convention. I bet, I'm sure she doesn't listen to this podcast, but she's going to be at 
World Fantasy. In fact, oh, hello. If you're if you're going to be at World Fantasy Convention in Toronto this year, and you see someone walking past with the name tag Kathleen Jennings, she's an Australian artist, and you should say hi from the Cood Street Podcast, please. All of you, every one of you, please. Okay? Yes. Best fan writer went to my friend Robin Penn for, for a piece he wrote, The Ballad of the Unrequited Dittmar, which, re- which requires more explanation than I'm going to give it. Best fan artist went to Kathleen Jennings, who all of you are going to be saying hello to in Toronto. Um, we'll skip that one. Best new talent went to Joanne Anderton, who was a very, very worthy winner. winner. Uh, the William Athling Award for Criticism or Review, a rare award, a national award for criticism or review, went to... Um, Alex Pierce and Tahani Wesley for reviews they did of the Rokosigan saga. And we can only say congratulations to both of them, but particularly to Alex, who is our dear friend. Yes. And the other one was best fan publication in any medium, Gary. And I'm trying to decide whether we need to be going woohoo or to be picking a bone with Australian science fiction. Because whilst Bruce Gillespie's fine fanzine SF commentary, Mm-hmm. Elisa Krasenstein, Tansy Roberts, and Sean Wright's terrific interview series, Galactic Chat, and the widely, widely lauded and Hugo Award-nominated Galactic Suburbia by Elisa Krasenstein, Tansy Randy Roberts, and Alex Pierce were on the ballot, along with a couple of guys who come to talk. Yep. Yep, yep. There was The Writer and the Critic by Kirsten McDermott and Ian Mond, which took out the Dittmar. Excellent. We aren't going to mock them. Ah. Uh, you, 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 you've been on this podcast. You have abetted them defeating us. You have joined. Oh, honey, the, after the fact. Well, I mean, yeah, we but they do the they you. Yeah, you're so it's fine. It's it's a very well. Here it is. And, and having listened to it not regularly because it's long. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, sorry. It's 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 very thoughtful. It drills down into individual books. That, as you as you found in a way that you and I flitter over the surface of whatever comes to mind. Yes, we know that's uh, so absolutely. Uh, it's 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 a recognition. What I see that of because you mentioned the Athling Award, yeah, um, is a recognition of criticism in the form of a podcast. And being a critic, I think that any form of recognizing criticism, whether it's in the Athling Award, which only Australia has, by the way. Mm-hmm. Or in the form of recognizing a podcast needs to be celebrated. So congratulations to our friends. Heartfelt congratulations to both Ian and Kristen. It's a terrific podcast that I listen to regularly, even if I skip the books that I don't like. But but the rest of it I listen to regularly and carefully. I do. So congratulations. Yes. We'll get you next year. Anything. Oh, sorry, anything sorry, sorry. that. It, well, I mean, seriously, no, anything that involves. The extended discussion of books, the thoughtful discussion of books, um, even if they do choose weird books occasionally. There was uh, gingerbread, is, Gary. Freshly baked ginger, gingerbread. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, really. Ah. So fresh baked goods, big microphones, and a mixing desk. They're like for real. Really? Kirsten is. Monty's not. Monty's like, you know. Yeah, right. He's like a mascot for the podcast. But, in fact, he, he could be a, modca- uh, oh, a, a really mascot for all these people. <laughs> no, I like him. It was so good. I had, I had, I had a great time, and it's a great podcast, and a hugely you know, deserving winner. Um, so that's why you know either you or, or Galactic Suburb, either us or Galactic Suburb, you have to win the podcast at the Hugos next year, because I don't think we're going to take him out next year. I think they'd, they'd, come, they'd get over the top of us. 
Sorry. Oh, they're in French, darling. Well, maybe we should start talking seriously about serious books and actually think about them. I, you know, I thought about that, and maybe, you know, sort of, listeners, you can put it into uh, comments if you choose to. Uh, ways of switching up the the, 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 um, the format of this. I actually thought about adding, like, a thing we do every now and again where we actually did that, but then I thought, are we just stealing their format? That's not cool. Okay, here's a there, there's a program on on locally in Chicago that's broadcast nationally, but it's it's from here. And and once or so, once a year or so, I go on with some other people, and we each have books we want to talk about, but we don't all read the same book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in other words, uh, yeah, I would be given four or five books. These are not about science fiction books. Mm-hmm. Last time I was on, I had to read a biography of Modigliani or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you talk about the, you basically do a a a, a three minute review of the book, and other people ask you about it. And you get to discuss a lot of books that way. Um, and I, I think that, that what would intimidate me about the idea of, uh, of, of having to both read the same book at the same time is that um, it just covers fewer books that way. Yeah, but you actually have a conversation rather than well, talking at somebody. You can have a good conversation if only one person has read the book because the other person is trying to decide whether they want to read the book based on what the one person says. No, I'm not convinced. Sorry. Okay, well, whatever. Well, <laughs> we, we could try it sometime, see how it worked. We've never really talked about a book in detail, have we? Well, we've talked about a book in bits and pieces. I mean, three or four times here we've probably talked about Caitlin Kernan's... No, uh, no, no, we need to take a step back. We've we've waffled at great bloody length about one or two books. I reckon well, okay. we've got about three hours' worth of conversation about Among Others by Joe Walton. We've had a lot of coverage of Among Others. We've had spotty coverage of 2312. Uh, we've had spotty coverage of the Drowned Girl, I suppose. Um, but yeah, we haven't really devoted a long time to having a conversation about a book. But that that involves actually remembering the book weeks after you've read it. <laughs> I know. That sounds hard, doesn't it? Maybe, no, we, could anyway, maybe we could try it sometime. It, 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 it always shocks me to go back and look at reviews, because I had to do this when I was putting these books together. Go back and look at reviews I wrote 15 or 20 years together and not recognize some of the titles. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'm impressed. That's, yeah. I thought I was bad. I mean, hey, maybe we should get Kirsten on sometime and we could talk about we could talk about a book. We could get her to pick one. As long as it was new and we hadn't read it yet and we wanted to read it anyway. We could. And there are things coming up that'll be exciting. Huh, like what? Let me see. Well, I, I can't keep track of what's coming back. Have we already talked about we've already talked about the Graham Joyce novel, haven't we? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that's actually out yet or not. Um what else is coming up? The Kids Johnson's collection of short stories, certainly. Yeah, we're going to talk uh, to her about we, that next week. Yay! We'll talk to her about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so they're, they're, they're all maybe maybe we just need to do planning. This this is the usual comment we end <laughs> up with at this point in the podcast where you and I say, well, maybe we should do some planning, and then we get a lot of emails that say, yeah, you know, you, know, talk about <laughs> you mean like Sophie in that comment of hers when I walked out of the panel, going, "Hey, Dad, you could have prepared." Yes. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like that. But you know you know what the difference we have, Gary, between us and all those other Australian podcasts? Apart from the fact that you're not Australian. Well, yeah. At it the is. end of an hour, we go, you know what? That's about it. And guess what? That's about it. That's about it. We're about done. We're past an hour. And think about this. By not discussing a book in depth, we are saving our listeners the next 45 minutes to 90 minutes. On the other hand, by being late with this podcast and then doing the one with Kidge on Saturday, they'll get two podcasts quickly together, which will be weird. Oh, well. That'll be good okay. On that cheery, if slightly perplexed note, I'll talk to you on the weekend, Gary. Talk to you.
talk to you on the weekend, and we will have a podcast from the Locus Awards Ceremony Weekend in Seattle. All right. Until then, goodbye. All right. Bye.